You're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips, and I'm the head of urban advocacy at Hip Fee Hype. Hip Fee Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible, and more intuitive solutions to our cities. This is a story of three built environment professionals, an architect, a sustainability consultant, and a development manager, who saw an opportunity to create a better way of building and living. Instead of buying separate lots of land to create individual new homes, they came together to develop dwellings that not only benefit themselves, but future generations. The Davison Collaborative represents how we can use what we have more efficiently. Acting as a case study on sustainable density, transforming one post-war suburban dwelling into three fossil fuel-free, 100% electric homes for the next generation. Solar panels, sun and battery technology, electric heat pumps for hot water and hydronic heating contribute to achieve an 8 plus out of 10 star energy rating. The collaborative development model by Hip Hype allows collaborators to realise a new development by pooling financial resources to create quality, more sustainable and financially accessible homes in inner city urban locations. While creating a beautiful and functional space to live was important for the three couples, two children and three dogs, ensuring the highest level of environmental performance and integrating sustainable measures into the homes was a top priority. Liam Wallace is joined by Chris Gilbert to describe how the project came together and discuss what it's like to buy, build and live with your friends. So what were the objectives at the start of the project and have they been realised? It's a bit of an open question, isn't it? Because the objectives were to achieve three houses for three different couples. And in that case, it was success, definitely. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, Laura. I think the objectives for each of us differ slightly somewhat. I know from my perspective, um, the Davison Collaborative was a really good opportunity to test some ideas that we you know, had had at the time uh, around alternative development models. Um, you know, to better achieve, uh, you know, quality, sustainability, uh, particularly in locations closer to the city um, that, that are of particular interest to our age group, I guess. You know, there's there's lots of, you know, people around our age, you know, starting to have families and looking, you know, looking for slightly larger homes. And there's a real lack of that size home, you know, in the, in the apartment market. Yeah. And then... You know, just land prices are so damn expensive. So, you know, you take areas that, that we sort of live in and around Brunswick as an example. And, you know, the median house price at the time, you know, you were, you were having to pay sort of $1.2 million plus for a three-bedroom family home. And you, you'd buy that and then you'd sort of be left with this with this existing house that, you know, was really at the end of its life. You know, may, may have been built sort of in the 50s, 60s, 70s and... As far as energy ratings concerned, like it's lucky lucky if it'd be two to three stars at best. At the time, we just set up Hip versus Hype, and Archer, Chris, and the guys were forming the architectural practice of Archer, having come out of their warehouse space in Preston and sort of joining us in a studio space in Carlton North. And Chris, you know, do you want to talk to the situation that that you and sort of Miranda specifically were in at the time and that that probably kind of gets us to the point of where we sort of came together and decided to to undertake a a shared project. 
Yeah, yeah. I guess we were in the kind of stereotypical position of living in an apartment, wanting to have a family. So we're looking to buy a family house. And as Liam said, like everything was that was on the market was essentially a one point one to one point two million dollar liability. It was just a starting point, and that opportunity cost of buying a liability and then having to invest x amount more to achieve something that represents your values was just out of reach for us so we were really interested in ways of achieving a space or an outcome that reflected our values and would contribute to you know be a positive space for the child we wish to have um at the price point we wanted to achieve. Well, at the price point that was like, you know, within, you know, grasp really. Um, it was pretty advantageous, like, or, you know, the timing was pretty fantastic. The fact that we were sharing a space with uh, Liam and Pete and we're like, okay, if there's going to be a spot, a, a space and a time to test something, this is it. <laughs> you know, we're all here. We're all literally sitting in the same room. Yeah. Let's do something. Um, and, yeah, let's let's test it. And it, and it was definitely we went in knowing that um, it was a test and wanting to feel out the space and then um, you know learn from it and iterate really. And I think you know if one of the objectives is to learn, we've definitely we've definitely taken that out of it. Yeah, learning's been a really big part of the process. <laughs> um, it you know and to provide people with some context, you know, like I've I've been working in commercial development for close to 12 years um, having sort of studied architecture and property finance at, at Melbourne Uni and really really my journey's been about seeking to understand the financial model of project procurement um, and having studied architecture I really come at it from a you know a, a passion for great design and what that means you know for, for for spaces that we create and the value of design has been something that I've always mm. been interested in as an, as an idea um, you know so at, at around the time that that we kind of came together around this idea of wanting to do a shared project you know we just we just done quite a lot of work with the with the Nightingale guys and helping to establish the the legal and accounting framework that sits behind Nightingale and helped help the guys on uh, Nightingale One sort of take that project through to construction commencement and really bringing from my perspective that property side mm. um, experience and knowledge into into that that process, you know, and and these ideas of deliberative development, co-housing, bow group, and you know, really kind of popular ideas, and I guess we as a business we wanted to sort of bring that that learning that property learning into this space and start to think about how we could you know kind of explore alternative development ideas yeah at the smaller scale and the smaller scale was key for us too you know because like i guess there's lots of risk involved in this stuff and and lots of moving parts and 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 lots of component parts of the process that haven't necessarily been tested before particularly in a local context Mm. Um, so you know, undertaking a, a smaller scale project with with friends, you know, Pete from Archer, oh, so Chris from Archer and Pete Pete from our sustainability business, um, really gave us a gave us a really great framework to start to explore the potential. Planning is a big yeah. one, wasn't it? Really, <laughs> at the end of the day, like we yeah. 
planning wasn't necessarily as straightforward as logic would suggest it should have been. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, logic prevailed. Yeah, look, structurally, we did quite a lot of work uh, early on to design a sort of a collaborative housing agreement, if you like, a joint venture agreement. We, we did that in conjunction with a, a friend of ours, Chris Kamen, who just sort of, he's a film producer, he'd gone off and studied sort of law and he, he, he was out sort of practising and we explored these ideas together around, you know, the law in itself being quite a, you know, lacking collaboration in the way that it, that it establishes relationships. It's quite confrontational. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid uh, when we're coming together um, in creating a collaborative housing development with friends and we're seeking to maintain relationships both through the process and out the other end. So your traditional off-the-shelf legal document's not appropriate for this sort of process. Um, it doesn't set up constructive relationships. So we, we set about basically deconstructing um, a standard joint venture agreement and seeking to reconstruct that in a way that should there have ever been an issue where you know things got a little bit complicated with luckily we were able to manage at a very practical level the entire way through the process which is great but had that not have been the case we had a legal framework in the background that 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 had removed a lot of that that natural kind of confrontational setting that that exists in in standard documentation that that setting ran its way through each time within the process, uh, the procurement process that we had to, say, pull that legal document out of the drawer, you know, we've, we've designed our building, we've got our permit, we've, we've undertaken costing and we go to the bank and say, hey, hey, Mr. Bank, we, we need some money now to undertake the construction, mm. that we pull that document out of the drawer and explain to the bank how relationships, legal relationships have been established, why, what we're seeking to achieve using our understanding of that process and its intersection with risk as a financial institution understands risk really really telling that story Mm. Um, and that that's critical and it's a really important part of development in any context you have to be able to tell that story in the context of risk and what it means to a bank Uh, but particularly so in the context of collaborative development and having you know, having three owners with a clear intention to live in the homes that were produced at the end of the day is quite powerful from, from a risk perspective for, for a financial institution. So that was a really big part of our story as it came to, to funding. Similar thing could be said for the um, architectural and the design side of things as well. Like from the beginning, we designed it with the idea of collaboration within that process. It wasn't just the super ego of the architects sitting above everybody saying this is the building you're going to live in at every point it was a very collaborative process of developing the plans together understanding the ESD implications for each kind of design and then not attaching any kind of ownership over the design not attributing the design directly to the architect it's about the collaborative being credited with that process Mm. and really engaging in that process together Mm. and running that framework all the way through to the end so if people want to change things like match what like the classic architect would imagine the outcome being like that's okay it's other people's house it's not it's not your house it's not the architect's house like you need to kind of leave that at the door it's funny that idea though isn't it because 
like this is your house yeah. and you are the architect and yet you've been able to kind of like you've done it really well like it's it's been I, I think it's you know we work with lots of different architects you, you you guys Archer as a practice manages it quite well where you you sort of facilitate a process with your client that kind of brings them into that process and you don't hold on to ideas you know to the detriment of necessarily what a client wants to achieve yeah which is really great but like this was your house and yet you're willing to kind of work through that process yeah that's true i guess i've always got my wife sitting beside me <laughs> so it's as much of a conversation there <laughs> the, as well the real architect <laughs> the real architect comes out actually that's been happening lately um the other day Miranda moved a plant i was like really are we moving that plant I think that plant belongs there, doesn't it? <laughs> no, <laughs> so Chris. Like, you're turning into that guy. You're turning into that guy, Chris. <laughs> Don't be a piece. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a part. It's kind of respect, isn't it? The, yeah. the kind of upper end of it. It's like yeah. it's respecting each other's kind of uh, right to be an individual. And yeah. like there shouldn't, like this, this idea of the star architect kind of imposing their kind of will is, that's, uh, it's absurd, really. Mm. I, and I mean, there's definitely kind of values, Pete and yourself, like values aligned with our values. Yeah. So there's like, I think going into it, understanding that there was that alignment was probably the most valuable part. And that's, that has, is what has really allowed us to move forward, I think, yeah. through the tough times and through the learning, like understanding that we're all trying to achieve the same thing, really. We, we all went into the process like with a really clear understanding that we were trying to do something different and new and that there would be challenges through that process and I think when when the inevitable challenges arose say around timing and cost really being the two major challenges for us there's Mm. some some pretty peaky risk points in there where council refused our planning permit application which could have been the end of the entire process yeah which it's sort of that point before that I made around some of the decisions defying logic a little bit and maybe we can go into that as we kind of break it down a little bit more but I think just on that point I th- some people might be sitting at home sort of you're being like oh wow you know relationship dynamics coming into collaborative development and what what happens you know when a say relationship dynamics come into mm. Uh, b- between couples come into uh, the, the, the way that a collaborative relates um, and we, we actually thought long and hard about that early and, and, and what, we, what we established was sort of a board structure which mm. you know each uh, member of the collaborative sort of had to come to the board to make critical decisions with only one representative from a collaborative so you know couples could thrash it out yeah. around decisions but they had to make that decision and then bring it to the board structure which then made the decision in, in the best interest of the project and we also established sort of a, a further degree of separation where you know the management entity which which was sort of hit versus hype and I was sort of semi wearing two hats but by both running hit versus hype and being a collaborative member as well but you know ultimately we had that separation with the management entity that could you know, for a day-to-day decision, sort of trump the board even in order to act in the best interests of the project. And that was sort of there as a check and balance against, you know, relationship dynamics sort of infiltrating in and, and, you know, destroying the goodwill of the collaborative. Yeah, and that worked quite well, really. And, yeah, we kind of 
we, we sort of used that strategy a few times and we sort of mm. like well look like you, you know you guys go over there and make your decision and come back um, and probably enabled all of us to sort of use that to help yeah. us work through decisions definitely so how does the design response facilitate collaborative housing living it allows for collaborative living kind of brings to mind these ideas of a communal or a commune almost and really it's not about that it's about the preservation of self within that collective and that's the same within a family like um both within the collaborative and then within each building, the idea is to have some preservation of self within those units. So it's designed essentially for people to have their own space, to feel quite individual and then have a common area. And in this case, it's the front, it's the kind of classic patio um, or the front yard where everybody can come together and kind of have share those moments, you know, quite deliberate. We don't want to be on top of each other. You know, we want to be able to have families there together and develop those families independently but then have a chance to you know have a coffee together in the morning and that's enough you know we don't need to move past that point Mm. (laughs) you know this this idea even of open plan living like i feel like is going in the wrong direction for people to establish a sense of self so if you can apply that kind of thinking to a broader kind of communal um space i think that's where you start to see actual revolution occur yeah you know we're not we're not chasing like communist Russia. We're like, yeah. How do individuals exist in a community? Yeah, this this is a really important idea, and it's it's quite a complicated topic to be going through. It could probably run a podcast in itself on this issue. But you know, these these broader ideas, I guess, around you know, in society, are sort of you know losing trust with existing institutions, and mm. you know, being a little bit confused by how how decisions are made and you know how how you know government operates and acts in the best interests you know of us as individuals and i like i don't know like i kind of feel like people need to spend a little bit more time educating themselves as to how the system actually works um and operates and and i think a lot of people would find if they sort of spent that time to understand uh, the process and, and engage a little bit more within existing structures that they might actually find that it works reasonably well yeah. um, and that you know opting out really isn't an option um, if you're serious about moving forward positively I think opting in is the only option and getting a little bit more involved within existing structures and frameworks getting getting caught up in these bigger ideas and not really getting involved is, is not going to change anything um, so yeah, to, to Chris's point, I think we're, we're really focused in our projects and, and our process as well in, in this idea of like creating you know, space for people to exist as individuals, um, but then spaces for people to come together and engage more effectively and, and, and learn to be you know, more, more compassionate towards other people, uh, who they are, and their opinions. Hmm. Um, you, you know, and, and this broader idea in society that we can no longer disagree with someone without it becoming personal is just absurd. Let's let's create those spaces where we can we can be individuals but then come together and work as a group as well. And and not force interaction necessarily. An idea an idea like Davison Collaborative and Collaborative Housing, you know, it's not co housing. It's not consensus based decision making. It is 
like delegated decision making framework so we have a shared front yard yeah. um, the management of that front yard exists through an owners, owners corporation we try not to have that form of management structure uh, but but basically we kind of had to in the way that we established the ownership over that piece of land you know whilst through covid we haven't really been able to make the most of the front yard <laughs> yeah. it's still nice coming home at night time and you know just bumping into Chris in the front yard, saying g'day quickly, and then sort of going in inside. It's been kind of cool. We talk about those common spaces, like as much as you actually occupy them, mentally you occupy them. Mm. Like as you walk home, like past it, you've got an opportunity to say, I could sit there if I wish to. Mm. I choose not to, but I could. There's an opportunity there. So how does the design achieve an elevated ESD performance? The building itself is made out of structural insulated panels cut in a factory the polystyrene between two layers of osb so extremely airtight it was a challenge to make that system work effectively on such a tight site and mainly the issues came from council insisting that we have parking and then parking provision pushing our spans past what is achievable out of timber so in an ideal outcome we would have had a complete SIPs envelope, but we were kind of forced to kind of have a composite because of planning restraints, which we can talk about more if we want to. Um, <laughs> but extremely airtight volume, and then they also have um, active heat uh, recovery ventilation systems. So the buildings are constantly drawing in fresh air and pumping out old air. And during that process, it kind of mitigates the difference between inside and outside. Then, as we kind of talked about in the intro, solar panels that power an electric heat pump and heat the slab. So I don't know how you found it, but I, I think the, the HVAC is probably one of my most favourite things about the ESD provisions that we put in. Quite expensive, but to live in a house that always has fresh air is, mm. is different. Yeah, it <laughs> like, is different. Like, it's fundamental. Well, we, we had... We, we moved in and as is inevitable, you know, with construction, uh, there's a process of um, commissioning, if you like, after mm. you move in. Construction's complicated no matter how many times you do it. Things just never go quite right. Um, so our, our HVAC wasn't actually working for the first month of living in the house. Yeah. And, you know, I can attest to how airtight the houses are by virtue of, you know, without the HVAC system working and without it recycling in fresh air. Mm. There's no oxygen in the house. <laughs> like, you needed to crack windows and if you left the house closed for a day and came home, you, you could really notice how airtight the houses are. Mm. It kind of just makes you wonder how energy inefficient the average house is when you can leave it locked up for a week and come back and kind of feel semi-normal yeah. um, but to Chris's point you know with the HVAC system now working and recycling in fresh air to all bedrooms in all spaces you know you can walk into the third bedroom and in our case it doesn't get used that much at this point mm. you can walk in there and the door's been closed for a week and it's fresh yeah. It's just, it's pretty amazing, it actually. Is. And the temperature, the consistency of temperature within the homes, we, we hardly need a heater. We've only got heating in the bathrooms upstairs and we definitely yeah. don't need heating in the bedrooms. Yeah. You know, we, we, I sleep, we're sleeping, it's middle of, well, coming into the middle of winter now and, and we're sleeping with our summer doona mm. um, and no heating mm. uh, upstairs, which is 
like incredible. Yeah, it um, really is. Yeah, it's just a totally different experience. I can't, it's hard to describe, really. You, you only notice the difference when you go around to a friend's house and you're like, this is shit. <laughs> I'm freezing. What are yeah. you doing? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, like, I love that call, you know, like you get, you get sort of Western Europeans and North, Northwestern Europeans come, in, come to Melbourne and they say, you know, and I've heard it from multiple people, yeah. so they've never been as cold as I have been in Melbourne. Yeah. You know, and it just yeah. speaks to that sort of experience of the terrace house, I guess, around the inner north with lots of exposed thermal mass and, and no real sunlight penetration, long corridors and, and plenty of drafts. Mm. And they are freezing. Freezing. You know, you compare and contrast that against a well-built house, you're getting up, up towards eight star plus and not having to have a winter doona in the middle of winter is mm. kind of, just a totally new experience. Yeah. And then how does the Debson Collaborative demonstrate best practice sustainable density? Is the topology replicable across Melbourne? This is a really interesting question. I think, you know, you know both from our perspective as, as a business, it's really interested in seeing, I guess, the broader urban framework of Melbourne develop more sustainably. And ultimately that, that needs to come back to this idea of us using what we have more efficiently. You know, if, if our city's going to grow, then we, we can't keep growing on the fringes. It's ludicrous. Like, we're, we're, building, we're building on essentially natural land. What we should be doing is planting trees on that land and or growing food and or just, just maintaining sort of green, natural open space and protecting... Uh, you know our natural systems as much as we can and 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 in turn sort of looking back at at our existing frameworks and asking how we can use that more efficiently Mm. so how we can build how we can increase the the density of suburbs like brunswick that let's be honest it's an inner city suburb um, close to the city close to jobs close to universities um, really well serviced by public transport infrastructure that is where we should be looking to increase density and then you know at the same time we've kind of we're getting caught up on these ideas around neighborhood character and you know protecting white picket fences we're sort of our planning systems obsessed by this idea and we're we're layering on requirements so we're we're seeking to solve issues of urban greening as an example by by requiring sort of trees to be planted on on private land and then we look to public land and particularly in a suburb like Brunswick where you know it's it's really lacking in sort of greening in the public realm um and we're doing we're we're, we're sort of we're not doing anything really meaningful in that space and yet we're obsessed with trying to kind of force it onto private land more broadly, that's a separate issue, but in really, really simple terms, Davison Street was a post-war dwelling for a migrant Italian family that lived in the house for 50 years. It was a three-bedroom house that was just over 130 square metres, and ostensibly the entire backyard was covered in concrete, had about a 30 square metre veggie patch with a lemon tree, uh, everything else was concrete, and it had a house that was just over 130 square metres, right? And that that was sort of the standard, you know, brick veneer, post-war migrant family offer um, that you might find out way further out in the burbs in, in today's urban context, um, sort of out Point Cook way, if you like. What, what we were able to achieve through a very difficult process 
is three dwellings on the same amount of area. Each dwelling has an internal area of just just under 130 square metres, just on 130 square metres. So, so we're basically building a comparably sized home to the home that was existing, but we're timesing it by three. Um, we're looking at a two-storey form. We're setting back off the laneway by a metre, so we're contributing to urban realm. You know, we're giving area back to the urban realm, to the public realm, entering in off the laneway, so we're providing kind of greater degrees of surveillance and activation, safety. We, at huge expense to the project, we had to, we basically had to pay to repave the laneway. And what we're also achieving is pulling back off the northern boundary as well so you know there's a in the planning scheme there's there's a new requirement a garden area requirement and our lot's 360 square meters and essentially we're meeting the garden area requirement the design that that arch came up with is meeting the garden area requirement for a lot of 500 to 600 square meters and we're doing it on a on a 360 square meter lot we're doing all of this, we're managing interfaces with our neighbours in a respectful way, overlooking, overshadowing, we're meeting all of these requirements, um, we're providing significantly greater you know, areas of open space, we're giving back to the laneway. So we're doing all of this and yet we're in a position where we're finding ourselves kind of falling foul of local neighbourhood character policy that, uh, that meant that council ultimately couldn't support the application. We, we ended up having to appeal the application or the refusal at, at VCAT and then going through the expense of engaging lawyers and expert witnesses and, uh, you know, in order to pursue an argument um, to in, in, in support of our application. And, and it was, you know, I remember going to VCAT and sitting there and, you know, we were lucky enough to have Rob McGoran agree to provide expert witness evidence. I think he was as perplexed as we were at the decision that had come out of council uh, and also a friend of ours, planning lawyer, Nick Whittington from Maddox, who, who really went to town on this one. You know, we sort of went to VCAP, put forward our case, and we had a determination within a week. Yeah. Uh, and, and a very positive determination. Yeah, I think the member said, the, this, this proposal does exactly what the state guidelines are asking yeah. to occur. <laughs> like, first line. Yeah. Like, thrown out. Um, that's, that's, yeah. Like, I guess we're in a broader position here we're getting a little bit away from collaborative housing but what we are talking about is how we more effectively reimagine the future of our city Mm. and i think too often like too often these decisions are being made by people who who have enjoyed a particular area in a particular way for a long period of time way 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 too much emphasis is put on the existing character you know, ideas around how a place could responsibly evolve to become a better place. Yeah, I mean, there's this, there's this amazingly short-sighted or privileged position that people have taken that if you buy a block in a certain suburb, all of a sudden you have agency over what happens in that suburb. And that's an insane. That's an insane kind of position we've got ourselves into as a as a society. That ownership allows, like private ownership of the relatively wealthy, allows them more say in how our cities evolve. It's classic tragedy of the commons, isn't it? It's like no, that's that's that purchase shouldn't afford you any more rights at all. That's an insane way to progress our our urban context 
have to essentially buy a, a vote at you know million dollars plus like that's not the way we, we can move forward because you know in 20 30 years time 50 percent of people are going to be renting so does that mean that they get no say in how we develop our suburbs or develop our cities that's the fundamental shift that needs to like this idea of vote buying because then really frees our suburbs up to change dramatically mm. like there's there's no reason why we need to preserve the character of what is there because that like what value does that have historically like what are, what are we trying to preserve like an era of like conservatism probably mm. like mm. i don't know what that what that what we're trying to preserve there yeah it's it's really interesting isn't it because like the, the, there's undoubtedly like exceptionally good examples of architectural styles or particular you know built form movements over time there's undoubtedly sure. exceptional examples of that um that that you know, I, I think there's a place in seeking to preserve the exceptional, but yeah, like let's be honest, a suburb like Brunswick has no neighbourhood character of of any significant value. Get, get out, walk around the suburb, and and it's a hodgepodge, and and the urban realm uh, really does need significant improvement, and even regular yeah. street cleaning would would be a start. But even that, yeah, like even this idea of value in the suburbs that are perceived to have, like, what is that value that we're trying to pass on to the next generation? What do we value massive lots and mm. transit by car? Is that the value we're trying to pass on? I just can't, like, I, the only thing I can come to is the people value having this perceived idea of space. Like, that's the value we're trying to hold on to, which is just so elitist. It's completely fucked. Um, but it's, it's interesting too, you know, because like I, I see you guys as an example of an architectural practice with immense talent and a real sort of, you know, something to offer, right? Um, both now and, and future generations. So like ideas around neighbourhood character, i.e. sort of your ideas having to somehow pay homage to whether it be exceptional examples or mediocre mm. examples of that which existed before, yeah. like, isn't that in a way limiting our kind of creative potential, our innovative potential to come up with the ideas that we haven't yet thought of 100%. and how, that, how those ideas could potentially improve our urban realm in a way that we haven't yet imagined? And if, yeah. like, if, if a society... If as a society we put ourselves in that position that, you know, because of this idea that we should pay homage to what has existed before us, um, should then limit our, the creative potential of those today to create the tomorrow that is in everyone's best interest. Yeah. So to come up with those ideas that we can't yet or haven't yet thought of, yeah. the entrepreneurial spirit, the creative potential of us, what's the point yeah what is the point yeah and then and then for them to choose that that period the first wave of kind of suburbanization is the thing you should pay homage to like what about the traditional owners of the land i'm pretty sure a kind of shitty like brick veneer building pays no like respect to the traditional kind of occupation of the land whatsoever so why choose that point 
and say this is where we need to start from and mimic and integrate the first like the, you know the most arguably the most kind of privileged generation like no yeah. fuck that and then i guess to the other point is it um scalable it's scalable if we were to get rid of the need for car parking yeah it's 100 percent scalable and we could roll it out you know efficiently quickly car parking is the bane of these developments Car parking is a really big limiting factor, isn't it? Yeah. Like in terms of from a design perspective, an added significant cost to to the project. Each of us ultimately, I think you, you guys are a great example. Like you, you've got one car. We've sort of reconfigured the car parking space on site. It kind of gets used more flexibly. You guys have made your car available on car next door. Yeah, every second weekend, somebody else is using it. So it's sort of like, you know, this traditional idea of car park ownership where you know the car park out the front of my house is mine and i get kind of pissed off when someone else parks in it um accepting the fact that that space is ultimately public it's a public road anyone is free to park there you know we're sort of evolving now in the way that we sort of use something like a private car that you know yes it takes up a space in front of the house but it's used by multiple people, not just you guys. Mm. Um, and therefore, kind of we're making better use of, of an asset that takes up kind of public space. Uh, as a generation, we're evolving in the way that we, we ultimately use space and some of these ideas that are inherent to the planning scheme, which are much more rigid and aren't necessarily focused on incentivizing ideas that would help us create a better city yeah we, we did a really interesting study as an example with davison collaborative we looked at the laneway that davison street uh, davison collaborative fronts onto the laneway runs what five blocks length and on each of the blocks of land that have a southern facing aspect to the laneway so nine single houses fronting this laneway so if we were to replicate the davison street condition give extra land back to the public realm by virtue of increasing the width of the laneway um, so it would cr- create a safer laneway framework it would increase the amount of green space by offsetting off the northern boundary um, significantly given that the majority of backyards are covered uh, in, in an area like Brunswick are covered in uh, concrete still anyway we could increase supply from 9 to 27 yeah. homes yeah. Um, now it's not just about increasing supply, it's increasing efficiency. So like we could create 27 highly sustainable homes yeah. um, you know, in walking distance to a central amenity, public transport, universities, jobs. Um, and we, we kind of expanded that study out across Brunswick and we looked at like all of these laneway conditions that exist around Brunswick and we looked at what would happen if we applied the Davison typology to those laneways. And you know, only spending a couple of hours really mapping this out, we sort of came up with around kind of the potential for around 500 new homes um, to be created very quickly, you know, looking at really just a two-story form. So in a way that really does, like when we talk about like these broader ideas, which I think are at the heart of neighbourhood character, which is let's, let's shelve the ideas of you know, I don't want this area to change because I've always lived here and I don't want you because you look different to me. You know, it does play out in this idea of neighbourhood character, but then there's there's genuine ideas around, well, okay, like respect for existing amenity and overlooking and overshadowing. So there's like these real, 
you know, rights that, that, that private land does have that, that, that I think should be really protected. So you look at Davison Street and you sort of say, OK, well, three two-level townhouse-style homes, high-quality architecture, considered timbers, bricks... And you consider the alternative way of densifying a suburb like Brunswick and you look at some of the, you know, eight, nine, ten storey cruise ships that have docked around the suburb over the last few years and you sort of say, well, kind of, how, how would we prefer this to occur? Yeah. You know, here's an opportunity to kind of densify around our laneway infrastructure. Yeah. Very, very like minimal intervention insofar as kind of visual impacts concerned. Um, we can achieve kind of similar levels of density or we can, we can kind of invite the cruise ships to dock. Let, let's, let's sit back and sort of have a think about what we'd prefer. And yet at the same time we go and instigate policies like the, the neighbourhood residential zone and slap it over the entire suburb to disincentivise that exact form of redevelopment which you know has the impact of then incentivizing the cruise ships to dock it's it's just uh, you know I, I think we've kind of got got our wires crossed a little bit and, and it's the exciting opportunity I guess you know for for something like the Davison Collaborative to have been built now and and you know a lot of people have had the opportunity to see it and understand its form and context and you know the positive impacts of an idea like that now that's what's really exciting for me is like actually then having the opportunity to kind of bring bring people along on that journey and without doubt our generation's on board like there is absolutely no doubt about it and i think you know progressive elements within the broader kind of population of see the merit as well you know um and and i think it is it is just about opening up that conversation yeah yeah we've paid we've paid for that conversation to start yeah that that has been a significant investment yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's i guess comes back to like what was the goal the goal was to start the conversation and to learn and ultimately to teach the davison collaborative is a test case of built environment professionals who have come together to put their money where their mouth is and to test new ways of designing, building and living. If you're interested in learning more about collaborative housing or other alternative housing models, take a look at the Sanctuary Magazine issue number 51, the article Better Together Exploring Collaborative Housing in Australia by Anna Cumming. Thank you for tuning in.